When I was younger, I didn't like shooting, I liked editing, and now when I'm older, I love shooting. And I also love editing, but I love shooting. I, I, as I've gotten older, I've just gotten a little more comfortable with the fact that when you make a movie, it's a real social experience. Every single film I've made has been a marker of who I was at that time of the making of that picture. So it's kind of like looking back over your life and say, was high school more exciting than college? Films are markers, they're stepping stones, all about who I was at different spaces of my own growth as an artist and as a husband and dad. Today's episode is a love fest for the greatest filmmaker in the history of Hollywood, the greatest filmmaker of all time, Steven Spielberg. He is undeniable. He is the GOAT. If you say he's not the GOAT, you're a liar. He is the greatest. He is the greatest of all time. Jaws, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Raiders of the Lost Ark, E.T., The Color Purple, Jurassic Park, Schindler's List, Amistad, Saving Private Ryan, Catch Me If You Can, Munich, and his new movie, The Fablemans, is in theaters right now. I'm not going to talk a lot on the beginning of this episode. This is what we call the preamble, but just know this is a tribute. This is a celebration of the greatest of all time. Director, producer, filmmaker, storyteller, Steven Spielberg. With, with The Fablemans... I guess the fake ones came out last month, but I think that's the reason why they started rerunning the doc, the Spielberg documentary on HBO Max. Yeah, well, they had been playing it before that. Like, of course, it's always available if you have HBO, you know, or HBO Max. It's always streaming on there. But I think now with the with the release of the Fablemans and the <laughs> and the pending Oscar season, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I guess they were like, yes, now would be a good time to put some extra emphasis on the availability of this most excellent documentary, this comprehensive documentary of one of our greatest um, cinematic storytellers or perhaps even, you know, one of our greatest storytellers, period. Well, see, that's that's what I told you when I texted you. I was like, man, I'm watching this Spielberg documentary. Spielberg the motherfucking goat, yo. He is, yo. Hey. <laughs> he the goat, yo. He the goat. <laughs> you can't front on him, yo. Yeah, you can't. You can't. Can't go around it. It's like I, you, I, no. I can't, I can't see no way around. I can't. <laughs> you, you can't go under it. You definitely gonna go through it. <laughs> oh, yeah, man. man. I mean, so this funny. guy's made thirty-two films. Probably no hyperbole at all. Out of thirty-two films, there might be. 10 solid, timeless cl classics that you can't deny. Yeah. I almost think there might be 10. You know, it's almost like, you know, you know how uh, people are, you know, remiss to say that, hey, somebody like Bruce Springsteen, Bruce Springsteen, you know, or a Woody Guthrie or somebody like that is part of the American songbook, if you will. Correct. I believe Spielberg's films are a part of that American a uh, cinematic song book in a way, you know, if there was to be such a thing, you know what I'm saying? Like he is, you know, having his films is like you, you, you can't trade them out for anything. Like they're, you know, almost irreplaceable to, to some extent. 
So let's say if there were to be an American cultural songbook or photo book, something, you know, which, you know, these things are uniquely American Mm -hmm. and are fundamentally American. Like these are the giants upon which, you know, whose shoulders we stand upon as, you know, younger people and younger creative people who are trying to make things and tell stories and to put, you know, things out into the universe that weren't there, you know, before. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, Spielberg is going to be one of those people in terms of film. Bruce Springsteen and Woody Guthrie in terms of music. Certainly, you know, uh, Miles Davis and Charlie Parker, Ella Fitzgerald, uh, Nina Simone. We could probably come up with a, a complete list of people who have just made indelible marks on culture and pop culture uh, in this country. And it's just, he, he is just not deniable, man. Not at all. I was, I was, uh, I'm trying to remember the first Spielberg movie. Oh, and, and in, and in the spirit of talking about Steven Spielberg, which a lot of his detractors and critics will say, you know, he's, he's a very populist filmmaker, you know, he's, he's, he's very popcorn, you know, theater, you know, the easygoing casual moviegoer is going to enjoy his films more than the heady, highbrow, art-minded theater goer per se but in in the spirit of him being a popcorn filmmaker okay i have a bucket of popcorn here that i will be munching on <laughs> during the course <laughs> you're getting a little asmr on us okay mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now i want some man we're buying mm-hmm. mm-hmm. that's how i go mm-hmm. but, oh man so if anybody listening here's some crunching along the way <laughs> this is this is real popcorn. This is a this is a real uh a real popcorn movie experience. But well well while you're munching and crunching and munching there, man, you know, mm-hmm. with Spielberg, you know, you mentioned that he is very much a populist filmmaker. And even with the films where he went through a period, I wanna say about I wanna say beginning with Schindler's list, you know, in ninety three mm-hmm. or ninety four where he obviously changed cinematographers to Janice Kaminsky, and he started mm-hmm. making films that were decidedly of more of a darker bent, if you will, or people would maybe say even a more mature bent, you know, even, mm-hmm. you know? And he goes there for about, I want to say for about seven years, seven to eight years, where he's making these much more darker films, almost as if perhaps a response to those detractors who said, all you can do, Steve, you make these very populist entertainments, these roller coaster rides, you know, sentiments, very sentimental, you know, type movies. Is mm-hmm. that all you can do? It's like as if he rolled up his sleeves and said, all right, okay, all right, okay, right. I got you. Hold, no, no. Hold, hold my beer. Exactly, hold it. I got you. I got you. No, no, hold me back. No, 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 no. I got him. I got him. No, no, no. See, you were talking all that stuff before. See, you ain't saying nothing now. You ain't saying nothing now. It, it was like, it's, it's like, it's like, it's like, a, it's like a good fellas where Joe Pesci walks in. They're like, keep him here. Keep him here. Keep him here. And then Stephen came back and just give it to him. <laughs> Private Ryan. Munich. Minority Report. Stomping on him. And look, his his buddies uh, De Palma and Scorsese yeah, was, was in to help him kick the stew out of him. <laughs> 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 but you know, but you're but you're right and. I don't know what the motivation was. I, everything I've heard and everything I've read in terms of, you know, knowing what I know about him personally. Yeah. It could be that what you said. It could be also too, you know, he was 
at that time he was in his 40s, mm. you know, uh, 40s going into his 50s. So, he, you know, he's an older guy, he's maturing. You know, he has a lot of kids, you know, so he's a father. Yeah. And, and much of the first third of his career is marked by him making films and a lot, not a lot of the films, but some of the films where he's exploring that boyish glee, that Peter Pan syndrome, that, you know, the adventure and the spirit of adventure. And even when he portrays families, it's always from the perspective of a kid like him who grew up in Phoenix, Arizona, primarily, and who came from a broken home was estranged from his father. And so whenever, you know, a lot of times in those films when families were portrayed, like in Close Encounters. E.T. Or in uh, E.T., you know, divorce is definitely, you know, looming in the background. And so as he, you know, he meets Kate Capshaw on uh, Temple of Doom, they end up getting married. He's, they've been married ever since. They got a bunch of kids. Yeah. And so by his 40s and 50s, you know, he's probably looking at the world differently as you and I have now that we have children where you want the world to be a better place, you want your children to be prepared for what's out there for them. And so you start to some extent putting down, you know, childish things and in, in, in behaving as a, you know, as a, as a real full grown adult, as a grown ass man, so to speak. Yeah, exactly. And the other thing I would liken it to if I'm keeping with my analogies is, you know, I'm want to say that you know, oftentimes in the uh, comic book and cartooning field, really a cartoonist is not worth their salt until about uh, until they're about 40 or thereafter. You know what I'm saying? Like they've lived enough life experience to the point where it's like they're starting to find that they have something that they want to say. Now, that doesn't mean that they're not facile enough to still give you those entertainments, if you will, like those very, you know, fun, you know, type of material. But you often find, well, perhaps not often, but those that do, they find something else to say usually about that time or thereafter. And I think that's the case with uh, Spielberg as well. You know what I'm saying? And that same argument could be made for filmmakers also. You know, there are a lot of kids who pick up a camera, certainly back in the day, decades ago, who pick up, you know, eight millimeter cameras and 16 millimeter cameras and make their own movies. Mm -hmm. And you know, go on to go to film school and whatnot and graduate film school and then start making movies. And, you know, to a great extent, you know, there aren't a lot of Spike Lee's or people or John Singleton's or Steven Spielberg's who as 20 year olds, mm. you know, seem to really have a real command or a real sense of who they are as an artist, you know. Uh, but I think a lot of them, you know, by the time they get in their 30s and 40s, you know, they've worked probably, you know, like James Cameron, you know, they've worked other kinds of uh, positions in the production uh, line of, of making a film. They've been cinematographers. They've worked as a second ADs, et cetera. And then graduate to get an opportunity to tell their own story with their own feature films later in life. Steven Spielberg was considered a, a wunderkind. You know, he was 20 years old, 20 something years old, directing Joan Crawford, who was already a major star on Twilight Zone. Yeah. You know, what well, Night Gallery. Night Gallery. Excuse me, I apologize. Night Gallery. And he talks about it. He says, you know, directing her as, you know, as a kid, it was like, you know, you're a 20 year old kid trying to pitch to Hank Aaron. Mm, mm. And it's to my understanding is that Joan Crawford, who, again, was a seasoned actor, actor who had been around for decades and, you know, was a legitimate star and a figure, you know, in the uh, in the in the Hollywood landscape. She said that she knew right away that Stephen was talented. She said he 
She said she was suspicious at first because she said, oh, he's just a young kid. How's this young kid going to direct me? Mm-hmm. And then she said he was so creative. He was so um, he was so alive with what he was doing. He was so in tune with it. He was so spontaneous. And she said, you know, all of that, you know, f- bled over to her and to other other people in the crew. And she said she really started to think, OK, you know, having these years of experience isn't necessary. a tell that someone is going to make. Uh, a great film or be a great filmmaker. And she said she she knew right away that that he had something special. You know, it's interesting because on that Spielberg documentary, um, they show like, you know, clips from, you know, some of the uh, television that he directed. Right. And even from just those clips, even from. Yep. There was the yep. opening credits from like, you know, one of those shows, either Night Gallery or one of them, just the way he placed the camera and had stuff framed in the mm-hmm. in the shot. It's like, oh, dang, dang, yeah. Very few young people would have that command, like, right away. Like, this is where the camera needs to be, right here, you know? And 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 you see that, and it's like, you know, like you said, just, it's kind of like we were talking about with, you know, John Byrne on that previous episode, where it's like, he's not Close Encounters good. He's not Jaws good. He's not, you know, <laughs> Raiders good. But you see the the early moldy elements. You know, it's yeah. the bread is almost ready it's to come almost, out of the almost. oven. It's almost, <laughs> almost. You just need to brown it on the top a little bit, and then it'll be straight. But yeah, but yeah, you're right. And even like you see in the documentary, you see those clips of um, from Amblin, which I've never seen that movie before. I've only seen portions of it. Right, me neither. But just like, but you see the shots and, and the way that he, you know, like you're saying that. Um, uh, the way he uh, he framed the uh, the characters and some of the object, you know, the uh, some of the frames that you know, characters in silhouette and reflections in mirrors and, and just doing really creative, simple things that made watching the film not be boring. Right. And you and I have talked about because we're both fans of the TV movie Duel. Oh, uh, with Dennis yes. with Dennis Weaver. Yes, absolutely, sir. I <laughs> I remember seeing that as a little kid, and I was like. Dang, because I knew Dennis Weaver from McLeod. Okay. <laughs> and so I remember watching that movie, and I remember my father was telling me, yeah, it's about this car, this guy who's being menaced by this this truck driver, and, you know, you don't know who the truck driver is, and the truck, and it almost, I mean, if ever there was a time where it's like an, inanim- an inanimate object being driven by a human almost seemed to have this spirit, a spirit of menace. Yes. And of, uh, like, if it, it was just that, man, but... um. Even watching that movie in the documentary, you know, they're interviewing George Lucas and they interview in the doc, they interview quite a few of his contemporaries, George Lucas and De Palma and Scorsese. Yeah. Um, some of the old uh, cinematographers that he worked with and, uh, and other creative people that including um, Kushner, the uh, the writer that he's been working with a lot for the last few years. And George Lucas said that, um, Everybody knew about Steven Spielberg. He said that George said that he was suspicious. You know, this kid. Ah, oh, let's see what this kid's gonna do. Whatever. Yeah. Blah blah blah. And he said that um, he had seen Amblin and he thought it was fine, but he knew Duel was coming on. And he was over at, I believe, uh, Francis Ford Coppola's house, and he said he he wanted to sneak away. He snuck away to a bedroom or something to watch Duel on TV because this is on broadcast television. Right. So you have it's appointment TV. You got to sit down at eight thirty, and you got to watch it, and you got to sit through the commercial breaks and see all of it. And he said uh, he only planned to watch like the first twenty minutes of it. And he said he watched the whole thing, and then he said he came downstairs and he told Coppola, 
and some of the other folks who were there that, hey, this guy is fantastic. You've got to see this movie. This guy's fantastic. He's really got something special. Mm. Um, so that's just like the, an incredible cosign. I don't know if, if, if George at that point, I guess, was pre-Star Wars and maybe post-American uh, Graffiti. Had to have been, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, um, yeah, they just they all recognized it, man. Everybody just says, you know, it was just clear and evident to see. Oh, man. So let me ask you this. Was this your... Was Duel like the first time? Maybe you didn't know Spielberg by name yet, but was that the first Spielberg movie that you saw, um, as Mm-mm. you recall? No. Of course I saw Jaws. Okay. I've seen Jaws and Raiders. Raiders came out in what, 86? 81. 81. I definitely saw Jaws before, and then probably saw Duel. Okay. After that. But I didn't know who anybody was. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I didn't know who anybody was. I think maybe I knew who Spielberg was by the time. Oddly enough, we were talking about George Lucas. After Star Wars, I knew George Lucas's name. Of course. Sure. And sure. that's when I started paying more attention to directors. And so I probably knew Spielberg's name after that um, with Raiders and then, you know, uh, you know, subsequent films after that. Got you. Yeah. What about you? Uh, for myself, it would probably be hmm, because I'd seen a lot of Spielberg movies, but I just didn't pay attention, like you said, to who it was. You know, like as as a kid, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, the the color purple was ubiquitous. The color purple was there when it came out on VHS. My my dad recorded it, and you know I would watch it not often, like it was a favorite, because that's a tough watch in some parts, but. You know, I would watch it often enough that like it became a household favorite, if you will, you know, mm-hmm. and it really wasn't until I saw Raiders of all places on WGNX Channel 46 one Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> I'm dead serious. I saw it on Channel mm-hmm. 46 one Sunday afternoon. And I, and I remember it so well. I remember all the details. I was trying to finish my math homework in like this purple mm. textbook. I even remember the mm. small details. And I took a break from it, and I turned on the TV, the Channel 46, because uh, they were already playing movies on Sunday afternoons like that. And I saw this movie on, and I think I came to it midway. All I saw was, like, some Nazis, and I saw this dude in a fedora. And instantly, my mind was like, bing! Wow, this is some World War II-type stuff or something's going on, because I love World War II, right? Mm-hmm. And so I stayed around to watch it, and I was glued. I, 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 I'm trying to remember if I even finished my math homework. <laughs> I really don't remember. But yeah, I was like, wow, what is this? So, you know, I opened up the TV Guide, of course. That was my Bible. So I opened up the TV Guide and I saw Channel 46. This is a movie called Raiders of the Lost Ark. Oh, oh, okay. And the thing was, too, I don't know about you, but when I was a kid, I would read the TV Guide, like the Sears catalog. I, I didn't have cable growing up, so I would read the cable yeah. section and just be like, yes. wow, wow, look at all these movies. Wow. I know, yo, I know, yo, we didn't have cable. <laughs> I don't think we had cable at all. No, I n- never had cable until I was an adult at all. Yeah. So you would see, so you see this listing of all these movies coming out, and I always saw Raiders of the Lost Ark would always be on mm-hmm. cable, perpetually. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? And. I was like, wow. So it's fine. So that's what it finally was. I finally saw a piece of it on TV. Okay, great. And then I researched who the director was, Spielberg. 
And then over the years intervening, I started gathering, oh, okay, he also did, I've seen E.T. before, he did that, oh, wow, Jaws, he did that, oh, okay, you know what I'm saying? And then piece by piece, it was like, okay, this is who this guy is. And it didn't hit me until full force until my late teens, where I was like, oh, yeah, I'm a Spielberg guy, oh, yeah. And then when I went to uh, college, to art school, we took a um, film class, and the teacher... (laughs) Just getting to know us, you know, just went around and asked, hey, what, what are some of your favorite films? Who are some of your favorite filmmakers? Mm-hmm. The majority of the class, all of them quoted some Spielberg film or Spielberg as a favorite director or influence. You know what I'm saying? So I think to young people, to young directors, especially of our generation, you and myself, mm-hmm. Spielberg is just, he, he's indelible. You know, he's indelible. He is the thing of imaginations, if you will. He is the thing of every young, not just filmmaker, but uh, storyteller of creative person almost. If you're of our generation, he's in there somewhere in the mix. He can be a big part of the mix or an infinitesimal part of the mix, but he's in the mix nonetheless. You know what I'm saying? You're you're so right. I, I have, and I misspoke earlier. I had seen Close Encounters. Oh, uh, okay. Obviously, before all of those other things. And that was really the one where I was just like, again, being, remember being blown away. But I still don't recall th- like knowing who he was mm-hmm. or him being a household name. But so it was definitely Jaws, Close Encounters, and, and Duel. And then eventually, obviously, Raiders and other things. But that's cra- That's a crazy cool story that you first of all do you remember all those details uh you're talking about you know the tv <laughs> yeah. guide and looking at your homework and yeah <laughs> um and the fact that in art school you know that they you know that they entertained you know talking about film and, and that that was a part of the uh the the curriculum if you will uh you know to some extent maybe they just touched on it i'm i, I don't know but just a touch yeah okay just a touch but yeah that's that's great man as far as that latter period that you were talking about earlier, where he seemed to kind of go into more, you know, more, quote, serious subjects, darker themes, uh, more adult themes. Um, and, you know, and you have like Schindler's List and then eventually Saving Private Ryan. And, and then later on, of course, Munich uh, and Bridge of Spies and things of that nature. But yeah, I remember f- feeling at the time seeing Schindler's List and, you know, which... It's hard to say this about a film that is so violent and so bloody and so gory and approaches war in such a real way, not just in terms of the visceral nature of the uh, of what's going on, but also like in terms of the emotions, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, (laughs) characters who feel afraid, but they have to push that fear down. Characters who are unsure that they should be fighting in this situation. Why am I here? Characters who were all in to fight here, you know, like Barry Pepper's character as the sniper, you know, he's, you know, quoting Bible verses while he's killing people, you know, and um, uh, and then also, you know, a character like Tom Hanks's character where he is there out of a sense of duty and obli- obligation. I've I've you know, I've said that I'm going to do this thing and I'm going to see it through. Mm-hmm. You know, I've committed to this and I'm going to see it through. Um, despite the fact that I'm a school teacher and, you know, I'm, I've ended up here and I might die here, but, you know, he's, he's going to meet, you know, the, uh, his commitment to, uh, you know, to the army and to his country, et cetera. But even seeing that movie, I remember that time and thinking, damn, Steven Spielberg is going on run number two. 
Mm. Mm. Like he is seriously, it started really with Jurassic Park, I guess, before oh, that, yeah. right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's where he had the belt. He was like, ding, ding. I got right, it. Right, right, right. champ. <laughs> he did the Ric Flair. Woo! <laughs> <laughs> Nature boy. <laughs> but I remember then, like during Jurassic Park and during that, that you know, that Shinner's List and then that private, Saving Private Ryan era, we're thinking, man, he is going on run number two. Mm. Who, do, who does that? Man. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it's crazy because there was a period there, I would say, after 87 with Empire of the Sun, where I was like, you know, that, that, movie's, that movie's good. You know what I'm saying? But it's all right. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. It's, you know. <laughs> But then you had this period like, oh, Steve, hold on now. The wheel's getting shaky. Like that movie Always with uh, Richard Dreyfuss. Mm -hmm. The wheel's getting shaky. Then Hook, maybe he checked them tires, Steve. Damn, this car's shaking, yo. (laughs) (laughs) But then 93, it's like, ah, there we go. Okay, Mm -hmm. there we go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Woo! Yep, yep. <laughs> you got me worried Look, there for it's a like second. You drive, you drive down the road. He, he crossing over the double yellow. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you, hit, you hit those, hit those bumps on the side. Get it back in between the lines, you know. And there you go. There you go. He literally went on a second run, and I just didn't expect it to happen. Yeah. And and even for me. And I know, you know, the, the further he gets into his career, you know, the more gaps you kind of find in terms of, you know, films that you maybe connect with or think that are, are truly entertaining in the way that his the first third or the first half of his, his career has gone. But right. I even loved uh, or was in, I can't say I loved it. That would be an overstatement. I was impressed with Munich. I thought Munich was mm. very well shot, well written, well cast. I thought it was a tough subject matter to try to make quote heroes out of these guys who are essentially assassins and terrorists you know who had killed a child and you know and so i was really really amazed by that and then catch me if you can i've mentioned before on the show sure is probably my favorite Le- i don't have a lot of leonardo DiCaprio <laughs> movies that i love yeah but that's that's my favorite one and you know tom hanks with that fake boston accent and you know and leo on the run as a teenager and, and it kind of played to me it always felt like it had the same spirit as, let's say, something like Catcher in the Rye, where there's this teenager who's kind of off on an adventure, and the teenager is not really the greatest person in the world. They're definitely like feeling their way around in terms of, uh, you know, what they can get away with and what they can. In this case, this guy was a straight up criminal. Yeah. Um, but I remember really liking it and thinking, "Damn, is is." Is Spielberg going on run number three? Trey? <laughs> Trey runs? <laughs> yeah, that third run, though. Mm. Mm. Get a little, little gappy. A yeah, little leaky, yo. Yo, a little leaky. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what's interesting, though? I mean, in terms of, you know, the films that he's made throughout his career, but especially in the latter part of his career, even with the subject matter, you know, outside of something like a Schindler's List or whatnot, there are still those touches that he puts on his films that are absolutely, to use a noun, um, and now it's a descriptive, there are touches that he has that are absolutely Spielbergian. Mm-hmm. They just are. 
even in the midst of certain scenes, it's like he can't get away from it for good or ill. You know what I'm saying? It's like he just can't. It's his trademark. There are certain ways they frame shots. There are certain touches that he adds to a scene to either uh, heighten the suspense or heighten the emotion or what have you. He can't get away from it. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. It's his it's signature, you know? You the in the documentary, the Spielberg documentary, which came out in 2007 for anybody who's never seen it. 2017, excuse me. Mm-hmm. Um somebody was quoting and said nobody moved the camera like Steven Spielberg moves the camera in terms of storytelling. Yeah. In Duel, there's a scene where Dennis Weaver is sitting at a table in a diner. And he's pulled up and he's already been menaced by this this 18, this mud covered, rust colored 18 wheeler that looks like a giant dragon. Yeah. And the truck pulls up into the uh, into the truck stop diner where he is. He sees a guy walk out from behind the truck, comes in the diner and the guy moves from the right to the left across the corner and goes to the counter and does get something or does something. And the camera is waist high. So you never really see the guy's face very well. Yeah. Follows him to the counter, his back. He turns around. You do see his face, which is kind of a clue to let you know this is not the guy driving the truck. Because, we, you know, he's already told you through without telling you in, in the storytelling of the movie that we're not going to see who's driving this truck. This truck is 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 a spirit and an entity unto itself. It doesn't matter who's behind the wheel. So the guy literally turns the counter. He moves back across again, waist high. The camera's waist high across Dennis Weaver's uh, sight line. He walks out the door. He walks around to the, to the side of the truck and Weaver is eyeballing him because he thinks, OK, this is the guy who's been who's been following me. The guy walks behind the truck, gets in a little pickup truck that's parked out where you can't see him behind the 18 wheeler. Right. And drives off. And then Dennis Wheeler is crestfallen because he's like, well, who's driving this truck? And so he's suspicious of everybody else in the diner now. Everybody, everybody. And we hear the term camera movements all the time. You know, when we hear people talking about filmmaking and directing, and st- you know, and that kind of storytelling. Mm-hmm. But where you place the camera, how close it is, how far it is, what you capture, what you don't capture, what's off camera, what's in frame. All those things affect how you feel about the scene. Sure. So, so there's a reason why when things get close, close up. And handheld, it feels more claustrophobic. You know, I can't see what's behind them, and and it's shaky. And I, you know, you feel like you're in the heated, tense argument situation with the two characters in the scene. Or, you know, if it's a nice wide shot, you get some sense of expanse in terms of everything. <sighs> yeah. Know? Uh, and when the character moves from one side of the room to the next, you know, you have a clear sense of their body language and everything. And all that's supposed to be intentional. And the person in the documentary really deep, you know, made a point to say that. No one moves the camera like he does. He is just really technically proficient and, and just artistic, uh, just creatively. Uh, he's on point in terms of uh, in terms of his camera use, man. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and that's the thing that, <clears throat> you know, began to strike me uh, much more uh, the older that I got. You know, I went from, you know, just a young person who really loved, you know, Raiders. You know, I was all about Raiders, Raiders, Raiders all day when I was mm. a young man, especially in art school. To someone who started to appreciate the the subtleties of, you know, um, storytelling within the camera, within a cinematic, you know, sense. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the checked out, one of the most checked out books when I was in art school, coincidentally, was this book uh, that combined the stories of 
like the biographies, if you will, of Spielberg and Lucas. And it was called Spielberg and Lucas, the creative sense or something like that. I remember mm-hmm. it because it had a Drew Strews and painted cover on it. And mm-hmm. the reason I remember that is I checked it out one time and I returned it, of course, with the cover intact. But the next time I went to check it out, somebody had stolen the cover. <laughs> I was like, dang, man, come on, y'all. Y'all tripping. Damn. Hey, man. Hey, man. <laughs> How else were you going to get something like that back then? That's true. <laughs> you know, you had to gank it, yo. You had to, <laughs> but you had to, you had to get it, yo. And, and it's so funny because <clears throat> as a young person, you know, when you're into Spielberg or whatnot, you're struck by the wonder of it all. You know what I'm saying? Like how you were mentioning earlier, he was very much a wunderkind. You know what I'm saying? And that his movies always, to a certain point, struck that nerve, that 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 sense of wow. You know, almost uh, uh, an, an adolescence, if you will, to a, to some mm-hmm. degree. You know what I'm saying? It's very entertaining. You know, almost like you know, comic books in a way, or uh, children's stories, you know. They're things that you can still read at any age, but at a certain age, they strike you much more and much richer, you know, than any other age, you know what I'm saying? And that's how it is with uh, Spielberg and those early movies of his. And it's just like at some point, he said, you know, like we're detailing here, I've done those, you know. I could go back and do those if I want to, Mm -hmm. but right now, these are the things that are prescient and affecting, you know, to me, you know, as an older filmmaker, you know, mm-hmm. and even in recent years where he's tried, you know, different things, you know, hence that, that kind of spotty record that we're talking about with his latter day films. He's to the point. BFG. Yeah. Ready Player One. Oh, the Post. War Horse. War Horse. West Side Story. It's like, Steve. Oh, West Side Story. Steve. So don't even t- I, I remember when they announced West Side Story, I was like, who is this movie for? Yeah. <laughs> who is this for? Who is supposed to go see this? People over the age of 60? <laughs> <laughs> but yet, only he could get that green lighting. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Only he he is probably one of the very, very few people in Hollywood who could go to anyone he wanted to and say, I want to do a movie about this. Okay, how much money do you need? When do you need it by? And when are you going to get the movie done? You know what I'm saying? Like, there's, yeah. like he's, just, he's just it. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, 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 you're right, you're right. As, as we begin to close, man, are you going to try to see the Fablemans in theaters? Are you going to maybe wait till HBO Max or something like that? Or I'm going to wait till HBO Max, and I'm going to tell you why. I'm going to wait for HBO Max because I feel like, to me, the Fablemans, by the, the trailer that I've seen, I, I try not to watch too many trailers these days, but mm-hmm. the one that I saw for it, yeah, this almost seems like Spielberg's uh, victory lap, if you will. Mm-hmm. It's almost like this is... I, obviously, he may make more movies after this. Who knows how many movies he's going to make? It's not like Tarantino where he said, I'm only making 10 and that's it. You know, Spielberg, mm-hmm. to me, he's, he'll probably make a few more movies after this, of course. But this right here is his victory lap. This right here is like his. It has those Spielbergian touches to what he wants his biography to be. Obviously, it's a thinly veiled portrait of him as a young man. That's to say, it's not him, but it is him. You know what I'm saying? And I think the experience of watching that, for me, 
will be much more intimate watching it here at home rather than in the theater. Although there may be touches that may play better in the theater. We are talking mm -hmm. about Spielberg after all. You know what I'm saying? So there are definitely yeah. maybe things that may come across much better on a bigger screen, but I almost feel like it would play better on in the intimacy here at home, you know? I, I, I would agree. I'm probably going to do the same thing. Uh, I, I am really interested to see it because, you know, after decades and decades and decades of watching and loving his films and really respecting him as a, as a creative um, and as an artist, I did get to learn more about his life and, you know, and growing up in Arizona and his, mm. his father, and his mother, and his mother was kind of a creative free spirit. His father was this engineer and, and very, you know, very learned and very uh, technical minded and He's kind of caught between the two worlds, and then he's estranged from his father. They divorce. Yeah, he's estranged from his father for years, and his he and his sisters, and you know, and you know, and 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 what divorce does to kind of wreck wreck kids. And so, you know, I was aware of a lot of that, and then also aware eventually, you know, as I became a younger person who who really started to like insatiably seek out information about the people who made things, find out that he used to make films when he was a kid. And he was the guy who was always making movies when he was a teenager and he was a nerd and he was kind of bullied and picked on. And, mm. you know, and he was, you know, as, as a young kid who couldn't get into film school, you know, he, he was given a contract, you know, to direct, you know, television and then eventually went into feature films and basically, you know, Jaws, you know, his first big blockbuster is the first big summer blockbuster by all counts. You know, um, that movie had made more money than any movie had made up until that point. You know, in 1970, whatever it was, you probably 75, know. 75. It had made more money than any other movie at, at, at that point. And it was an immense success. And it established the summer blockbuster, the summer movie that everybody has to go see and that people would go see again and again. And so um, I probably, too, will wait till uh, till it's on streaming because it does seem to be less uh, idyllic and, and, and full, filled with wonderment and, and, and escape. And it does seem to be more of a real world, probably the most accurate kind of beat for beat kind of a retelling of his life story, so to speak, um, by him. And, you know, casting actors to play himself and his, mm -hmm. you know, his father his mother Mitzi and um uh and I assume his, his sisters as well and um and just getting into all of that so I, I agree with you it would be a much more intimate experience to enjoy at home although that certainly doesn't help the the studio who spent all the money and wants it to make money <laughs> <laughs> yeah absolutely absolutely such is the world we live in you know what I mean yeah for sure for sure and you know one thing that is undeniable you know I think you know, as much as people have given um, Spielberg his flowers over the years, here are a couple mm -hmm. more, you know, thrown on to him, man, because he is absolutely the GOAT, for sure, man, for sure. Yep. Yep. That concludes this episode of Sidebar Forever, hosted by Dwight Clark, Swain Hunt, and Adrian Johnson. You can find us online at sidebarforever.com. Any emails or questions can be directed to us at sidebarforever at gmail.com. And also, subscribe to us on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram.